You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Good to see you this morning. Glad you're with us. And uh, if you got a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. So we're going to land here this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. We're grateful you're with us. We are in a section of a study on this beautiful letter in the New Testament of the book of Romans, the letter of Romans, and uh, showing us the power of the gospel to save. And we are in a section of Romans that doesn't just show us the power of the gospel to save, but also the power of God through the good news of Jesus Christ to sanctify. This big term called sanctification, which simply means to set apart. We do this all the time. You've got clothes in your house. You've got probably dishes in your house. Maybe you've got other kind of uh, furniture or items in your house that you have sanctified. You set it apart so that you can use it for a more noble reason. It's different than everything else, and it has been set apart. And what we are going to see in this section of really chapter six and seven of the book of Romans is how the believer in Jesus Christ, once saved and having the penalty of sin forgiven, and now the power of sin being defeated in our life, what this looks like for us as those who've been purchased by Jesus Christ to be set apart, to be sanctified for him, for his glory, for his purposes. And what we learn is that this idea of sanctification isn't just a one-time event like justification is of being saved. Sanctification is a process. And from the moment you put your faith in Jesus until the day you die or the day he returns, whichever comes first, there is a process of being set apart, a process of being transformed more and more day by day into the image of Jesus Christ, who we've been saved into. Everybody in our world, Christian or non-Christian, everybody recognizes there is something about our planet that is broken. There is something about humanity that is fractured and that we are in need of a more noble humanity than the one we currently experience. And if 2020 or already into 2021 is, 2021 is clearly evidence that, is that truth that there is something better that we are missing. Uh, all of us wanna see a humanity that better respects the totality of human life from the womb to the tomb. A, a greater dignifying of human life. Those who care for others more than themselves, those who are more loving, who are more servant-hearted, um, who bring joy um, into this humanity. We're longing for it. Um, we just can't agree on how to, how to bring it about. That's the problem in our humanity is we know it's broken. We just don't know how to fix it. Now, the Bible answers that question for us by first clearly defining where it is this brokenness comes from. Because if you can't define it properly, then you're never gonna find the right solution. And it defines it by telling us this brokenness that we experience isn't just a brokenness that's out there with those people. It's a brokenness that exists in here, in every one of us, a brokenness within our own human hearts. And the Bible tells us that humanity was originally created People, men and women, were created intentionally by God to image God. The goodness that is in him, we were to put on display. But no, no sooner than we were created for that glory, we rebelled against our God. 
And in our sin, our transgressions against his perfect law, we rebelled and God as a holy and righteous God had to execute his justice upon our rebellion. And so he cursed those who have rebelled against him, not only us, every single one of us, but all of creation. And that judgment explains why our world is as fractured as it is, why it falls short of the humanity and the glory that we are longing for in our human hearts. But yet the good news is in the Bible is that the same God who executed justice on our sin and on this planet by putting a curse upon it is also the same God who has extended his love and his mercy in order to forgive and to redeem that broken people and that broken planet. And we, he's done so, and he lays this out in scripture. And this is what Romans has been telling us by first giving us his eternal son to come to our planet and to take on flesh like you and I have and to die a substitutionary death on a cross, absorbing the justice of God, the penalty for our violation of his perfect law, which was death itself. And not only did he die as a substitute for us, taking the penalty that we deserve, but he rose three days later from the grave. He conquered the very power of sin that leads to death, that is waging war on our world. And then to a people who from eternity past, God has chosen and given unto Jesus Christ. We are drawn by the Holy Spirit to him in faith. And once we have transferred our trust from our own selves to the sufficiency of God's provision in Jesus Christ, then we are adopted by faith into his family. And we take on the very life of our new head, Jesus Christ. That is why what Paul has been trying to communicate is that being a Christian is not just the idea of believing in the idea of Christ. Cognitively, intellectually assenting to the knowledge that Jesus existed and died for us. But actually being a Christian is about being placed in Christ, not just believing upon him, but being placed in him, whereby we share in both his death to sin, as well as his life to righteousness. And we take on that of our head. We are his body. He is our head. What is true of him now becomes true of us. And the goal of the Holy Spirit who's been placed within us as sealed, adopted sons and daughters of God, the goal of the Holy Spirit as we yield our lives to him now on this side of the cross is that day by day, we would see the reality of who Jesus Christ is take effect in our own lives that where day by day we will slowly cease the power of sin being put to death in our lives and the fruit of righteousness, which is in keeping with Jesus, will steadily be produced whereby the end of our lives, we will look more like Jesus than we did when we first put our faith in him. All of this that we've been learning about in Romans produces a new humanity that the world is longing for but cannot produce through its lesser forms of self-help and therapy and social justice and legislation as good as those things can be. It is a work of the spirit that God does from the inside out that produces new fruit and a new humanity with a new head. 
Now, all this process we see described in chapter six and chapter seven. In chapter six, Paul used two major illustrations to illustrate the life transformation process that the Holy Spirit brings us through as believers in Jesus. And the two illustrations he used in Romans six were illustrations that would have been common to every Roman citizen, that of a new king and a new master. That's what we learned in Romans 6. You've been transferred to a new domain from one king to a new king, from one reign to a new reign, from one master that you were enslaved to to a new master who's freed you to a new constraint, not of law, but of grace. And every Roman citizen understood that imagery in Romans 6. In Romans 7, Paul's gonna say the same thing that he said in Romans 6, but he's gonna use two new illustrations. One that every Jew would know, that of a new marriage and a new law. Because remember, Paul's writing to a mixed audience, a church in Rome that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and he's just putting the cookies on the lower shelf so that they can understand what he, this process is. And it, as every Roman understood one image, every Jew's gonna understand another. That's why Romans chapter one, when we talked about our depravity, was through the lens of a Gentile. And then Romans chapter two, it's the same discussion, but through the lens of a Jew. And now in chapter seven, Paul will speak to the Jew about a new marriage that we have entered into and a new law that is now binding over us. Look at this starting in chapter seven, verse one. And again, remember, if God is gonna save us by grace, then he better come up with a way to transform us lest he just be pardoning a bunch of criminals to go back out in society and wreak havoc. This is the transformation process. He says in verse one of chapter seven, do you not know, brothers, that I am speaking to those who are under the law? I'm speaking to the Jewish skeptics. Remember in chapter six, verse 14, Paul made the claim, we are no, those who are in Christ are no longer under law, but are under grace. That statement would have been blasphemous to a Jew. The idea that you could live a life of obedience to God apart from the law but rather through grace, that would be blasphemous. And Paul says, let me explain. And he's gonna use an illustration here that every Jew would have understood. He says, don't you know, the end of verse one, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, let me just ask you right there. Is that true? The law, any law, biblical law or Western civil law here, only is binding to you as long as you're alive. Do speed, do speed limits and traffic tickets apply to dead people? No. When you're dead, all laws are lifted that were placed upon you while you were living. You know what you're gonna happen after you die? We're gonna take your stuff, we're gonna put it in a state sale. We're gonna take your kids, we're gonna transfer, transfer custodial rights, and we're gonna take your wife and she's gonna marry somebody way better good looking than you are, all right? All, all laws are off. Everything is done once you're dead. Now, Paul says right here, he's gonna take a super commonly understood law from the book of Deuteronomy about widows being freed to remarry when their current spouse has died. Now, listen to this in verse two and three. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she were to go live with another man while her husband is still alive. That would be an affair that would violate the law. 
However, if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she goes and remarries another man, she would not be guilty of adultery. Old Testament law forbid divorce, except in the case of adultery. When you cheat on your mate, then now all of a sudden you have joined yourself with another. That would be the one in, at least in the book of Deuteronomy, the one excuse for being able to legally separate from your current marriage. As long though, as a woman was married and her husband was being faithful to her, then she was not free to go leave that marital covenant and go marry somebody else. If she divorced her husband for any other reason other than adultery, and then she would be forbidden to ever go remarry again. She would have to stay celibate the rest of her life. However, um, uh, and if she did go, by the way, and join somebody else, she would be guilty of adultery. However, here, if the husband is to die, if he were to die, then she would be loosed from that law and now free to marry another. In that sense, death would bring a legal separation, freeing her to be able to go into a new union with a new husband if she so choose. It is not until dislike does us part, it is until death do us part. Every Jew was familiar with this law from Deuteronomy. So Paul then says in verse four, this same principle that you understand to be true applies to every believer who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. He says in verse four, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. In the same way, a Christian who was once bound to our old husband, the law. Think about the law of God, the 10 commandments and all that stemmed from it. Specifically though, God's curse over anyone who violated that law. This is what it means to be under law. A Christian who was once bound under our old husband, the law, the Christian has now been freed when they put their faith in Jesus. They have been freed from that old husband through the death of Christ and through Christ's resurrection, they have now been joined to a new husband, a husband of grace. Law has been put to death. Grace now lives. Now, let me put it this way. Think about it for a moment. What was the penalty that God issued in Genesis 2 and 3? What was the penalty for transgressing his law? What, according to Romans 6, 23, was the wage of our sin. It is death. God said from the beginning, if you violate my law, it will lead to death, the fruit of death, both a physical death as well as a spiritual death, eternal separation from our holy God. Now, I want you to listen how Paul describes how Christ took that penalty, that curse of law for us in the book of Galatians. Listen to this from Galatians 3 verse 10. For all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. If you're gonna believe that your salvation is only gained by fulfilling the 10 commandments, that would be true if you could do it. But the truth is not one of us can do it. Everybody has fallen short of that glory, Paul said in Romans 3. Every one of us have fallen short. 
And therefore, to anybody who transgresses the law, if you've ever told a lie, if you've ever had a lustful thought, whatever it may be, then you now find yourself under the curse of law for violating that. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and notice he quotes, he quotes from Deuteronomy 27 there, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Here's the standard. God's given you his law. Here's his expectations. You do them all perfectly and then you live. But you transgress one of them and you shall die. You will be under the curse of law. Imagine being under that weight. Here's the perfect standard of righteousness that you obey and you will live. But guess what? You cannot. That's what it means to be under law. Constant shame, constant guilt, constant condemnation, constant fear of death and alienation from God. But then Paul says in Galatians 3, just a few verses later in Galatians 3.13, he says these words, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He absorbed it for us. For it is written, and he quotes there Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, who has received the execution of judgment for their transgression. Jesus's death on the cross, on that wooden tree, was, was existed in order to bring about and absorb the curse of law upon its transgressors. It's what Jesus absorbed through his body. In other words, as the old adage goes, our hands did things that we should not have done. Yet his hands were nailed to the cross for us. Our feet ran in directions that we were never supposed to run in. And his feet were nailed to the cross for us. Our hearts committed idolatry giving love and worship to lesser things other than God. And yet his heart was pierced on that cross for our transgressions. Our minds have embraced false ideologies that blaspheme the truth of God. And yet it was upon his mind, his head, that rest a crown of thorns. Our backs turned against God, ran in the opposite direction, and it was his back that was scourged for us. Paul said that curse for transgressing God's law was done away with when Jesus paid for what you and I did through his own body on the cross. And as a result, Paul says, because of what Jesus did and absorbed in his body for us, we are no longer under law anymore. We're not under sin's curse anymore. We are under grace. We've been brought into a new relationship. And so you can see when you try to explain this, a Jew would be sitting there going, okay, if I'm going to hypothetically take your word on this, then what was the purpose of the law? Because we were told at Sinai, when the law was given to Moses, that this was a good thing. Are you saying it's not good? What was the purpose of the law? Well, the purpose of the law was to exalt the holiness of God. The law represents the perfect character of God. And it was to expose the sinfulness of man who has fallen short of it. And it was used to execute the perfect justice of God on those who would break the law. 
But ultimately, what we're going to see is the law existed to actually drive us then to the mercy and the grace of God to forgive. That's what the law was for. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, which book was the law first given? Do you remember the book of the Bible where God presented 10 commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai? It was the book of Exodus. And the law, when it was given, not just the 10 commandments, but remember, there's 613 commands that followed it that were explained a second time in the book of Deuteronomy. But in the book of Exodus, the law, when it was given, again, it revealed the perfect holiness of God and it showed the holiness that God expected of his people who were to reflect him, who were to image him. Obedience to that law would bring blessing. God told them in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, obedience to the law would bring blessing on your life, but disobedience to God's prescribed law would actually bring cursing, a separation and an alienation for eternity from that God. Now, if Exodus just ended right there, we would all be hosed. But do you know what book follows the book of the law in Exodus? It's the book of sacrifice. There's a reason Leviticus comes right after Exodus because our God knew his people would never be able to obey with the contaminated state of their flesh and sin. So he provided a way for the penalty of transgressing his law to be paid for through substitution, through sacrifice. And so that's why we have the whole system of sacrifices in the Old Testament. When you sinned, you would bring an animal who would exchange its life for yours. Its blood would be shed for yours. Now that system, the book of Hebrews tells us, was temporary. Because just as you sacrificed one animal for one sin, the next day you sinned again, had to bring a whole another animal. You need a whole dadgum zoo in order to atone for your sin. But ultimately, what the book of Hebrews tells us is that the whole reason that whole system was set up was to serve as a foreshadow of the ultimate sacrifice that would one day come through the perfect person of Jesus Christ, God's eternal son, who would come as the lamb of God and lay down his life once and for all for his people so their sins could be eternally forgiven. This is what God has provided. And so in short, what Paul's getting after here is that Christ died not just so that your sins would be forgiven, Christ died so that you could be freed from its bondage and not freed though to sin all you want, but freed to be remarried to a new husband. Not law, but grace, whereby you will take on the life of your new head, your bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and you through grace will produce a fruit of righteousness that comes by that grace that could never come through law. It will be born in your life. Now in verse five, he's gonna explain even further about the impotence of the law, the inability of the law as a means for your righteousness and your transformation. He says in verse five, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we're at work in our members in order to bear fruit, not for life, but fruit of death. And I want you to notice something here before we dive into this. One, notice your verb tense change. In verse four, you have died. Verse five, while we were living, 
is all past tense. We are looking at our past before we put our trust in Jesus. We're looking at our old way of life, our old passions that were rampant within us, passions, plural, that violated God, that wanted to run from God. And in that time, the law, as good as God's law was, was never able to bring us into perfect obedience. It couldn't do it. In fact, it's because of the weakness of our flesh that the law actually did the opposite. It actually aroused our sinful passions. Here's what I mean by that. Think about it, and even in laws today, when you're driving down 35 and you see speed limit 65, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Is it, oh, blessed be the name of God who brings me this amazing constraint in my life. Thank you for all the legislators who worked so hard to think about my protection and what a joy it is for me to go no further than the amount of 65. Is that what comes in your mind? No, sinner. You look at 65 and you go, check your mirrors. I think I can do 80 right now. I think if a cop, were, a cop were to clock me, then I can just slow it down to 65 right there. I'm good. No, I, that's great. No, that's what we think. Think about yellow lights. How do you think towards yellow lights? Do you look upon yellow lights and go, sweet blessedness of Jesus, who gives me this Selah in the midst of my rush journey <laughs> so that I can pause and reflect upon why well, it's good to let others go first die to myself. Is that what you think? No, you think I'm 500 yards out. I can make this. I can crank this bad boy up. And yes, I'll make the yellow light, but I'll now be going 75 and a 30. Like that's what's going to happen to us. How about young children? You ever tried telling young children not to do something? What young child goes, oh, thank you, Rabbi Mommy. Your word is a lamp unto my feet right now. No, that child is gonna burn the house down after you tell them not to do it. They will tempt you and try you. The law, as Paul is showing us here, is to a human being what gas is to a fire. It's an accelerant. It simply awakens your flesh to do what you want, not as you should. Question, is law the problem? No, the problem is our wicked hearts. What we need is not more law. What we need is a new heart. So we will be compelled to obey, not under the tyranny of law and its weight and its cursing, but compelled by Christ's grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit to embody a fruit that is in keeping with righteousness that is found in our new husband. Jesus Christ. And this new heart that we need, it can only come through a new marriage, a new union, not the old one. You see this in verse six. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Now that's our union in Christ right there. He died to the law so that we could be freed to be with him and in him. But our freedom is not a freedom now to sin all we want as the law would entice us to do, our flesh would entice us to do. No, there's a freedom now to do what? See at, this, at the end of verse six, so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. 
Notice, by the way, your change in verb tense here. But now, we're not looking at the past anymore. We're looking at somebody who's now put their trust in Jesus Christ. Through the death of Christ's body, which bore our sins, the law's curse is dead. We are free. But again, free to what? Free to sin all we want? No, free to a new union, a new marriage that compels and empowers us to serve God and his kingdom in keeping with righteousness. Not of checking boxes, simply to do the least amount possible without getting in trouble, not obeying only because somebody's looking over our shoulder. No, compelled by grace to a new way. That word new that's used right there is a Greek word that means we are being introduced to a type of serving like we have never known before. A type of obedience that is produced by grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve our new husband, our new bridegroom. By the way, that right there is the first mention formally of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. Yet he's been active the entire time. We'll dive into his role more so next, uh, here in a couple weeks when we get to Romans chapter eight, but I don't want you to miss this. God has not left you without power. God has not left you without power. He who raised Christ from the dead is the one who is at work in you to, to give life to your mortal bodies. You are not a helpless victim and a helpless slave anymore towards sin and the addictive patterns thereof. You have been freed. You have been liberated to a new king, a new master, and a new head, a new bridegroom. The Holy Spirit is who's gonna do this as we yield to him and his power. Let me give you an example. Think about when you were in elementary school, maybe middle school, whatever it may be. You would obey your teacher as long as that teacher was present in the classroom. But you remember what happened when your teacher needed to go run an errand real quick and said, hey, I'm gonna head down the hall for just a little bit. While I'm gone, I want you to behave. I want you to do your work. Now tell me, how did that go? That was, is anarchy. It started with a little bit of noise. Then the noise level got louder. And then a racer started throwing across the room. Somebody's making out in the back of the room. Like we got all kinds of stuff going on there. Why? Because law has left the building. We were under law as long as law was in the room. But what if God, by his grace, found a new way to take the teacher who was out there and put the teacher within you? So now there is a new constraint. There is a new want to instead of a have to. This is exactly what God has done through Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit. This is what he prophesied about in Jeremiah 31 with a new covenant, this internal work that would produce a new humanity. You have been remarried if you are in Jesus Christ. You have a new groom who loves you and who has purchased you, who has died the death that you deserved and has freed you to be in union with him now. Not not for the life that you would live if you could, but the life that he's redeemed for you that you should. This is what he has done. So question, does grace produce a license to sin? 
No, Paul says in chapter six and seven, like a tree, it grafts you into a new life. Like a citizen, it transfers you to a new king under a new reign. Like a slave, it produces a new master and a new mastery over you. And like a widow, it frees you from your old husband of law through death and now frees you to a new husband of grace through life. Let me ask you something. As we hit these two chapters, and we still got more to go in chapter seven. Are you seeing this kind of transformation in your life? If you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ, is this your experience? Are you, whether you've been a Christian for three months, three years, or 30 years, are you experiencing a transformation from the inside out as you yield yourself to God? If you were to die today, Would your life look more like Jesus today than it did three months ago, three years ago, 30 years ago? And if not, why not? I think there's three biblical reasons why we don't see more fruit produced in our life in keeping with righteousness that is compelled by grace as we see about, by the way, everything that you've seen in Romans 6 and 7, it's not a command. It's a fact. This is what a believer's life should look like. And I think there's three biblical reasons why we fall short of that. One is, and it's common to every one of us, and this is where I hope you find at least some some solidarity and some relief in some degree, is that our whole life is gonna be a struggle. If you think that you put your life in Jesus Christ and you'll wake up the next day and everything will be perfect, you are sadly misinformed. Paul is gonna tell us at the end of chapter seven, the reason we are still going to struggle in this life is because we are still in these earthly tents that are still contaminated by sin. Even though greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world or in our flesh. But we're still gonna struggle. Paul's gonna say openly, I still do the things that I don't wanna do. And the things that I don't wanna do, I do. And I found that to be true in my life. I've been walking with Jesus about 30 years now. And I can tell you as much freedom and victory as I have found in following him, I still wrestle with the same temptations that I had 30 years ago. And it just plagues me. And I'm like, Lord, set me free from this. These constant thorns in my flesh, whether it be pride or temptation or whatever it may be that I can be prone to, these temptations are still a part of the struggle. And if that's you, number one, I say, welcome to the club. Like, don't don't beat yourself up with undue shame and condemnation. You've been set free from that. Christ took it for you, so you don't have to walk in that anymore. So yield yourself to him day by day. Sit yourself under the fountain of his grace that you might be renewed and restored. More on that to come in the next couple of weeks, but that should be good news to us. But there may be some of us who quite honestly, even though your profession has been in Jesus Christ, we're not talking about a day-by-day struggle, little spurts here and there where sin seems more prevalent than others. Some of us may actually be marked by actually a pretty long pattern of resistance to God and rebellion to him. Even though you still would profess faith in Jesus Christ, that maybe it's that you're walking through a season of prodigling where you have left the father, you have have loosened your tether and you have gone to seek your own will from your own flesh. And you need to know if that's you, the father who loves you, it's gonna pursue you 
harder than you can ever imagine. And he has put the Holy Spirit within you to convict you so that you would not loosen that tether too long. And he will chase you with his grace and he will discipline you if he needs to because Hebrews 12 says the father, good fathers discipline the children that they love and God will pursue you. And if you continue for too long without repenting, then what's gonna happen is Paul will tell the Ephesians, eventually you're gonna begin to grieve the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit who's in you is a real person, third member of the Trinity, and will be grieved. And you should feel that weight. And if you keep going longer and longer, where you begin tuning out the convicting voice of the Spirit, you are doing what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians of quenching the Spirit, where you're beginning to make yourself believe you don't even need the power of the Spirit anymore. And that leads to a very dark and dangerous place. And it is possible, and I have seen it, where sometimes I think part of God's mercy to a prodigal who will not repent and return home is God will just take them home. John says in 1 John 5, there is a sin that leads unto death. God may in just mercy just say, enough struggling, come on home. Whatever it is, his grace is sufficient for you. Don't hold that grace in vain. Repent, return unto him. And maybe that's the invitation that's here before you today is to turn to Jesus. Come back to your, your husband who loves you and has freed you for a life better than what you're living for. But honestly, it may just be if you have gone most of your professing Christian life without feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, without repenting and exhibiting what may be an unregenerate heart, it may be just, quite honestly, you actually think you're saved and you're not. That you have put your trust, not in Jesus, but in morality or when the trappings of Christianity, some form or process of the church where you walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and, and you have convinced yourself that your salvation is in Christ when really your salvation's in yourself. And if that's the case, the only answer is to repent of that sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Put your trust in the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus Christ and you will see a conversion take place in your life because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Bible gives no indication of a conversionless conversion. That's an oxymoron. He actually will transform your life, though it will be a struggle. The answer, y'all, is not in more performance. The answer always begins in abiding. Jesus said in John 15, just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. The good news of the gospel is that he has set you free for a better groom who loves you and will transform your life. John Bunyan once said of the law, run and work, the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. A better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and it gives me wings. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this truth in your word that you have not just come to save sinners, though you have, but you have come to set those sinners free from the old life to the new, from the old king of sin to the new king of grace, from the old master who oppressed and abused to the new master who brings a divine constraint of grace from the old husband of law 
that brought curses of death to the new husband of grace who brings through his resurrection life and life to the full and righteousness. Help us, God, not to yield ourselves to the flesh, but your spirit who promises to do his job of conforming us into the image of Jesus. We need this help. We need this grace in our life. And it's for the glory of your name that we pray it. Amen.